You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to episode 126 of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Victor Marks, and joining me is Neil Hughes. Victor, how are you? Neil, thank you for joining us. Of course. I want to jump right in. We're going to spend no time wasted on introductions. There's an article that we published yesterday that's about the new Siri icon location, which which our headline suggests could hint at the touchscreen home location in Apple's rumored iPhone 8. Yeah, this is uh, something interesting that we found uh, testing out uh, iOS 11 beta. Sometimes you'll find hints of future things coming. Um, sometimes they pan out, sometimes they don't. I know that there's been evidence for a few years of a quote-unquote dark mode in uh, iOS that hasn't come to be. Um, but this is one that, considering all the rumors that we have about the iPhone 8 ditching the home button, um, is pretty interesting to me. Um, basically, uh, we found uh, while testing on an iPhone 7 Plus, uh, doing a Siri command to uh, invoke the new Do Not Disturb While Driving feature, uh, Siri kind of changed its icon from its normal <clears throat> Cylon back-and-forth light that shows up to a circular one that uh, actually looks like kind of the roughly the same size as a home button would be on the bottom of the screen, but uh, rather obviously than being where the home button is, it's actually on the display. Um, and so th- this could potentially be a hint of something to come in the iPhone 8 and kind of giving us an idea of what the user interface will be like without a home button there. Um, it's not that hard to picture considering that the iPhone 7 and 7 Plus have a, uh, a home button that does not click that uses the Taptic engine to simulate the feeling of a click. So imagine getting rid of the groove where the home button is. Um, and still having that same feeling, the sensation of a click. And it might feel like, for example, you're just clicking the bottom half of the screen in or something like that. Um, and so, you know, it'll be interesting to see what it's going to be like, what it's going to feel like in the hand. But uh, this could perhaps give us a glimpse of what it's going to look like on the screen when you're interacting with it. Now, I've seen this on the iPad as well. And what occurs to me is that this is the same image of of a Siri icon that we've seen on the top of HomePod. Kind of, yeah. Same idea. Yeah, so I'm I'm wondering if it's also a move to make Siri uh, a unified thing that's not just a microphone button. Across that would make all sense as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Well, we will watch this and see more about it when uh, when the device is released. Of course, looking at the settings icon, um, the settings icon for Siri and search is also this round. Um, what would you even call that first? How do you describe the Siri icon now? I mean, right now there's like a line that goes back and forth along the bottom that uh, does a waveform with your voice when you speak. Yeah, it's those it's those three different colored waveforms going at the same time. Yeah. Now, but it, but here in a circle, it's. Um, it still does the waveform in iOS 11. It just we found at one point it did this circle um, by asking a certain command um, on an iPhone 7 Plus. I couldn't get it to do that yeah. on my iPhone 6s. So I was I was seeing it on an iPad uh, Pro 12 inch. Yeah, and so, I forget what it was that I did to invoke it, but I, I remember seeing the circular icon as well. Well, while we were attempting to do this, and I was messing around with Siri on my iPad Pro 12.9 inch, uh, it went through the process of actually uh, breaking breaking my iPad, uh, and I was stuck in a boot loop uh, for all of yesterday. Had to roll my iPad back to iOS 10, um, and I still haven't even gone through the entire process of updating it to iOS 11. Uh, it's still actually doing it as we speak right now, installing. So for those of you who uh, did not hear the disclaimer before, um, and, and I'm not 
complaining because I knew that I installed beta software on something because I had to test just gonna, it work. Just going to insert here you go again. <laughs> but, I, you know, I just I found it funny that the people in the comments on my original editorial were so offended that I said they should install beta software on a main system. But this is another prime example of why if I were dependent on my iPad for crucial daily use, then I would be in big trouble right now. Um, I, I do not install it on my primary iPhone and my iPad is not a, uh, a crucial piece of my workflow. So uh, I'm good. But uh, for those of you out there listening, uh, just know that these types of things do happen. It wasn't like I was doing anything crazy with my iPad. I was just testing out Siri uh, and it broke it. So don't install iOS 11 on your main device. And what happens is when, when you do have a problem like that, you can break out of the boot loop possibly, but if you restore back like you have and your backup to iCloud, for example, is newer, it's an iOS 11 backup, but you've restored back to iOS 10, then you cannot restore that backup because it's a newer iOS. I'll give it to you even worse. Here's what happened when I was messing around with yesterday. iOS 11 wouldn't start, put my phone in what they call DFU mode where you hold the uh, home button and the lock button for, you know, 10 seconds. You get it to say, please connect to iTunes, basically. Right. Plug it into iTunes, roll it back to iOS 10.3.2, then say, okay, now I want to upgrade to iOS 11. It installs iOS 11. I go through the setup process, and then I say I want to restore from an iCloud backup, choose my iCloud backup, and then it immediately goes back into the boot loop. <laughs> so, so I am praying because yesterday iOS 10 or iOS 11 beta 2 was released. I'm praying that uh, upgrading to beta 2 will allow me to restore from iCloud backup because otherwise I'm kind of in trouble. Well, it should. It certainly should because it's a newer version of iOS than your backup. So that should come back. Um, things people can do is, you know, you can you can always take copious amounts of backups intentionally using iTunes. Mm -hmm. I, I know that all of our mindsets are geared towards using iCloud backups because they're convenient and it works well most of the time. But especially if you're using a developer beta when you, you know, you should be prepared for things to happen. Uh, setting up iTunes backups where you intentionally connect to the computer and intentionally tell it to backup now can help you be prepared. We should point out that it's not just iOS 11 that's being worked on as beta, that even as iOS 11 is being worked on, Apple is still working on betas we're pushing towards iOS 10, 10.3.3, and tvOS 10.2.2. You know, they've they've gone through all of the, the iOS 11 things for beta 2, but at the same time, iOS 10 is still getting updates. And, and the reason for that has got to be that there are plenty of devices that are not going to make it to iOS 11, the, iOS, the, uh, the iPhone 5, for example, and 5C. And so iOS 10 is the end of the road for those devices. Yeah, that'll be it. Um, one of my questions about that is, uh, you know, are those devices on iOS 10, are they going to work with AirPlay 2? No. All right. Well, now I'm making a sad face. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm guessing, well, I don't know, actually, I could be wrong, but I'm guessing that AirPlay 2 devices will be backward compatible with AirPlay 1. The, the last time this happened, going back to the, the years ago in 2000, let's say 10, when iPhone 4 was around, AirPlay was available as an update to one of the iOSs for the iPod Touch, second and third gen. Mm -hmm. And the iPod Touch at that time stayed at iOS 4. And when they updated AirPlay after that iOS 4 release, those iPod Touches could no longer AirPlay successfully. Mm -hmm. It was in the operating system, but the speakers wouldn't receive it. 
And so it's it's always a little bit touchy being right at that cutoff point. Well, don't forget that when the first uh, Apple TV shipped, it didn't have AirPlay mirroring either. That was a software update that came later. Well, the, the first Apple TV well, never the, got, I'm sorry, never the got first, AirPlay. The first hot uh, uh, Apple TV. <laughs> the, the, yeah, the, the Apple TV 2 and the Apple TV 3. And the, uh, the and then, of course, the, the Apple TV 3 Take 2, right? The revision. Those got AirPlay mirroring. You're right. I still like that original Apple TV. You know, that's that's a nice piece of hardware. The, the very out. original one? The, uh, yeah. The hot plate? The the iPad, iPod without a display, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you were a fan of Front Row? Well, uh, Front Row is fine and well, but one of the things that I like is using internal storage, right? Mm-hmm. Streaming is wonderful. Streaming is great, but being able to load a ton of stuff into that that hot plate Apple TV and mm-hmm. take it with you turns out to be really handy, or just not have to worry about buffering and lower quality video that you get from streaming. Right, and so you know that's one of the questions that we asked a couple of months back, and I don't remember the answer was if there was a way to use one of the apps on the fourth generation Apple TV and internal storage to load movies into. I don't know what those apps do behind the scenes. There used to be a hundred megabyte limit or whatever on them too. So, yeah, I know that now they can temporary load data. So it used to be that like you would be capped at a hundred megabytes, but now you're capped at a hundred megabytes or whatever it is. But you can download like three gigabytes of data. So if it's like a huge game, it'll temporarily cache it. That was that was at launch. That was available at launch. No, no, no this, came, how, this came later. This was part. Maybe of the they increased the limit, but the original yeah. launch for Apple TV four. Um, Disney Infinity, right? The which was the uh, that sort of playground of Disney character kind of things. Yeah. Uh, they had a Star Wars game in it, and you'd launch the game, and it would immediately download a gigabyte's worth of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so they they may have raised the limit on that, but it was uh, it's always been that they could download extra stuff after the fact. Let's let's change topics just a little bit. Let's change gears. So we've talked in the past about how Apple is changing suppliers for the iPhone GPU. And uh, they had been using Imagination, right? Mm-hmm. Imagination disclosed earlier on that they were no longer going to be, that Apple's not going to be using the power of VR architecture. Now Imagination's board of directors declared on Tuesday that they've got a number of interested parties interested in purchasing the company and that they're starting a formal sale process. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is kind of the beginning of the end for this company. Um, they had a deal with Apple. Um, it was good for them for a few years. Apple bought a stake in them. Um, they Apple was in talks to buy them. It didn't work out. And then Apple announced that they're going to go elsewhere and stock tanked. And they just seem like they're floundering. So now they're trying to sell the company. Um, I don't know what the terms of the negotiations were when Apple was looking to buy them. But um, certainly since they, Apple announced that they're leaving, there's been some saber rattling of imagination suggesting that they are going to sue Apple for intellectual property theft and, and that sort of thing. Um, the suggestion would be that Apple is going to start making their own GPUs. I would not be surprised if Apple introduces chips with their own GPUs as soon as next year. Um, I think this year is probably too soon, but um, it would not surprise me if a so-called a 13 chip in 2018 um, is a entirely custom silicon in it from the uh, ARM architecture to the uh, GPU. I, I think that uh, I think that imagination's done. But e- even if that's the case, right? They're not going to refresh the whole product line all in one go. No. And so there are still going to be products being sold using the power of VR GPU. 
Yeah, I mean, it's going to be phased out, but I mean, Apple leaves these products on the market for three years mostly, and then they're out. So they're unlikely to be... And 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 even Apple's a little bit misleading their branding, too. Because even when a chip is advertised to be a certain chip, it's not actually always the same chip. So the best example that I have is the A9X CPU in the iPad Pro 12.9 inch um, and the A9 CPU for that matter in the new $330 9.7 inch iPad. Neither of those are capable of, hey, you know who capabilities, uh, even though supposedly uh, the hands-free Siri uh, while on battery life is connected to the M9 chip. So Apple claimed in marketing initially that the M9 chip was was responsible for that, and yet the A9 chip with M9 coprocessor is not capable of it on certain devices without any explanation from Apple. So I would not be surprised if things like, for example, the A8 chip supposedly that is in the um, upcoming uh, HomePod uh, is not the same A8 chip that was found in whatever iPhone that it first launched in the iPhone 6S or, or iPhone 6. Um, I would not be surprised if it's a new version of the A8 with it's, uh, it's within the A8 family, but it's not the same chip revision. It's a yeah, different because why would they need a power variant. VR graphics display for a thing that doesn't even have a graphics display other than the Siri d- display on top? Like that would be excessive power for it. They're going to be using the pro- the processor for other things other, other than graphics. So that's an example. Of- uh, unless they use the GPU to compute stuff, yeah, yeah, I mean, maybe I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm, they're I'm, using the GPU to compute local interpretation of the voice. I'm hypothesizing, but I am saying that uh, Apple will be able to phase out PowerVR from their products very quickly, um, and maybe even more quickly than people realize, because yes, they do keep legacy chips around, but they also modify them in certain ways to put them in other products, to cut costs, to increase efficiencies, that sort of thing. And Apple has taken on a number of employees from imagination, so it's not like they're missing out on any of the expertise that they need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Apple's been pushing very hard on their own designs on this kind of stuff, and I would imagine that starting next year in the iPhone, whatever they're going to call it, 2018, uh, it's going to be... Apple, has, with more money and more capabilities and more R&D, has been bringing more and more of this stuff in-house because they realize that the more that they can do that, uh, the better it is for differentiating their product. And we talked about this a little bit last week with, with uh, ARKit and, and that sort of stuff. They're creating platforms where users will only be able to experience that type of uh, app, whatever, on It's, it's, it's a walled garden is what it is. It's a walled garden, but it is a walled garden in the sense that um, Apple is doing things that nobody else can do. It's not like they're arbitrarily building walls and refusing to um, play nice with their platforms. Uh, it's more that the more they can control of the hardware, the more they can allow their own product to differentiate from others. So many of the parts in an iPhone are just off the shelf. You know, the cameras are Sony, um, the screens are you know Sharp, and and whoever else they're, they're buying batteries from someone. Yeah, you know, Samsung or whoever is providing the batteries. Right. Um, the more that they can take integral parts to the product and make them themselves, then they can allow the products to stand out in ways that other companies cannot do. A great example of that in terms of hardware. Uh, is Touch ID. Uh, nobody's really been able to replicate the success of Touch ID in the way that Apple's done it, and it's been on the market for years now. That was a company that they acquired, rolled in-house, and uh, made their own. And that is a way for them to continue to differentiate the product line. So 
as we go forward, things like the GPU, things like, you know, they've bought a bunch of flash memory companies. You know, it's and you see now there's a 512 gigabyte capacity on these new iPad Pros. I don't know if that's a result of them buying these flash memory makers or what, or if they're gearing up for something in the future. But certainly that's something that Apple would like to do to be able to make their own flash and potentially make it faster and better than, than competing products. One of the things that I'm thinking about, you know, Apple talked at WWDC a lot about machine learning and the importance of machine learning and how they're applying it to everything they do. Mm -hmm. And that they're trying to do as much on device as they can before they take it off your device. That, That they have very clear ideas about what should be processed locally versus what should be processed in the cloud Mm. and, and how those things interact. And we know that GPUs, Unless you're designing a special ASIC, a special chip, like uh, what Google has done for their Tensor units, where they have custom hardware running um, for for their TensorFlow, for their, their AI, mm-hmm. that GPUs are the way to go. That you pretty much need good GPUs in order to be able to do AI well. That the, the other thing that strikes me is that if you're going to be doing custom chips, that having GPU people who understand GPUs are the people you want when you go to make custom chips for your machine learning for AI. Because even though it's it's uh, focusing on a different core competency of the chip, those are the people that will know how to build that. Mm-hmm. So this should, and this is my my own personal opinion, this should increase Apple's value, having this expertise and this competency in-house. Mm-hmm. I think so. I am I'm looking forward to it. And I think that's probably why I suspect the GPU would live on inside an A8 inside the HomePod is not because they're using it to run the graphics display in a huge way, but because it's there to be used for local use, local compute in terms of both the audio and local use in terms of the uh, the processing of the AI. Mm-hmm. Because they're not doing small tasks when they're talking about the audio processing that they were showing either. Right? They've got six microphones, they've got seven tweeters, and a, a giant sub, and they're trying to take a read on the environment that you put it in, and also take a read on what other HomePods are around in the area that they can use. They're, they're doing a lot of interesting stuff there in terms of processing that I, I think is getting overlooked. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, to have an A8 chip in there um, certainly suggests that they have big plans for what it's able to do. And, and, of course, they need good GPUs if they're going to be able to do things like the 120 hertz ProMotion display in the iPad Pro. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the the iPad Pro's 120 hertz display is definitely the most impressive aspect of the device. Um, I, I looked at I, I, We ran our reviews of the uh, new iPads this week, and I've been messing around with the 10.5-inch one, and uh, uh, the benchmarks are just crazy i mean it's it's overkill that there there are no apps that take advantage of this horsepower it, it blows away like doubles the previous models capabilities which is is just nuts because it wasn't like the previous ipads were exactly being pushed to the limits it wasn't like you were getting a lot of slowdowns in apps or the os or anything like that um but apple's uh, capabilities on these chips just keeps getting better and better and better to the point where it's competing with some macbooks now um, so these new iPad Pros are incredibly powerful, and one of the one of the justifications for that 
um, is this new 120 hertz display, which, as the teardowns have shown, uh, requires twice the uh, cabling and bandwidth just to push through all the data to the screen um, in, in terms of uh, getting, you know, and how it operates. Um, and so... I wrote an article just kind of this this week, a little feature, just kind of discussing 120 hertz display and more notably what it could mean going forward for Apple's aspirations in AR and VR. Uh, they've been talking a lot, even publicly, about their interest in AR, Tim Cook has, and then they kind of tipped their hand a little bit at WWDC when they announced ARKit, allowing developers to create these things. And, you know, we've talked about it before that Apple is maybe probably not going to... Um, make their own headset, but they will create opportunities for developers to make made-for-iPhone accessories that might be able to do that. But in the meantime, we have these AR apps. But having 120 hertz to screen um, on a phone, theoretically, uh, would be something in the future that would allow for a AR and VR experience unlike um, pretty much anything on the market right now. So uh, the current flagship uh, devices that are out there um, in terms of true VR, uh, the Oculus Rift and the uh, HTC Vive, uh, they run at 90 hertz. Um, and the advantage for that, of that, for those who don't really understand what we're talking about, is if they run at a higher clip uh, in terms of what they're able to display, then you have a more lifelike experience. So um, if you have uh, lag or, or lower frame rate, for example, um, it can cause a headache because your brain is having a disconnect between what it's seeing and, and the movements that you're making. Um, and so early versions of the Oculus Rift uh, were not as good because the uh, pixel density was too low. So you could see what they call the screen door effect. Um, I was about to ask about that, if you could see the window screen problem. And then um, they also up the frame rate on these, so that, that, that's higher. Now, if you look at um, Samsung Gear VR, mm-hmm. uh, that still is limited by the capabilities of the phone and does not run at the higher 90 hertz. So uh, that is something that kind of holds back that platform. So I'm not saying that we're going to get 120 hertz phone this year, but Apple has a history of introducing technology in one device only to bring it to another. Touch ID came on the iPhone, later came to the iPad, and then the Mac uh, a couple of years ago or last year. Or, um, or cameras, right? Where you get mm-hmm. the good camera on the iPhone and then it goes and moves to the iPad. Yeah, you think about uh, Force Touch on the MacBook and the Apple watch before it came to as 3d touch to the iphone um you think about you know all these features that uh the the taptic engine on the apple watch later came to the macbook and to the to the iphone um apple has a history of introducing new technology where it makes sense and then gradually rolling it out to other devices Um, it's easier for apple to do something like 120 hertz screen um, or a Taptic Engine or whatever in a device like the Apple Watch or the iPad because those aren't as big volume movers as the iPhone is. So that allows Apple to kind of work out the kinks and then move it up to scale so that by the time they do launch it on an iPhone, they got to have, you know, $15 million for a launch weekend or whatever. Um, they can actually do it. And so this is an opportunity with this 120-hertz display in the, in the iPad uh, for a future iPhone to potentially get a 120-hertz display, which allow not only for this more fluid um, user interface and experience while while using it that is a lot more dynamic and a lot more uh, appealing, but also potentially future VR and Air applications would be greatly enhanced by this and allow for more lifelike uses. So in the interim, starting this fall with iOS 11 and ARKit apps coming out, um, the best way to experience ARKit 
on iOS is going to be on the iPad Pro with 120 hertz display. Developers are going to be able to tap into that and really make some fluid, dynamic, impressive-looking apps between the the screen and the A10X processor and all the capabilities of it. There's going to be some really awesome stuff out there. But looking a little longer term is what my uh, feature did. Uh, I see this coming um, to uh, the iPhone as well, and I think that that could be a big boon. For people who have yet to see 120 hertz refresh on an iPad, what what is the biggest effect for that person? I mean, when when we tried to explain what the difference was between non-retina display and retina display, we talked about how sharp, how crisp, you know, the the, the display was, how you couldn't really see the edges of characters anymore, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. With 120 hertz refresh rate, what is the the difference when you're not using AR or not using games, for example? So if you are using an iPad Pro with 120 hertz, what they call a ProMotion display, uh, everything is just a lot more fluid. Um, as you scroll back and forth on the home screen, as you scroll up and down in Safari, you're reading text, nothing really gets blurry, no frames are lost. Uh, imagine that everything kind of stays uh, more in focus as you're moving around, as you're pinching and zooming and doing whatever. The the, the screen is, is refreshing faster. Um, and this makes a big difference, especially if you're using the Apple Pencil, because it allows the latency, the time for uh, it understanding the pencil is touching the screen to it displaying the writing. Um, it, it's now down to 20 milliseconds, which Apple says is the fastest in the industry. So it feels more immediate when you're using it. Uh, you're making broad strokes or fast motions. Um, it shows up uh, more immediately as you're using it. It's kind of an imperceptible thing that is not really... Uh, tangible until you feel it and experience it. And then it's like, oh, yeah, Um, it it is very similar to, although not quite the big change uh, that going from a regular display to a retina display was. You thought that your iPhone display was great. You thought that your Mac display was great. You thought your iPad display was great. And then the retina display came out and then it was like, oh, it was like a whole new world. And then you couldn't go back. Uh, I don't think that the ProMotion 120Hz display is quite the same level of jump as the Retina display was, but uh, second to that, it is the biggest improvement in display that I've seen in Apple product. Um, it, it's, it is that big of a change, um, and it's very exciting. Uh, you compare it like last year to the, the True Tone display, uh, which I think is mostly a gimmick and, and not really of, of value to most users on an iPad. Uh, this is not like that. This is something that is actually a value and and is immediately noticeable. And when you go back to a non-promotion display, you'll notice the difference. Scott Forstall went to the Computer History Museum in San Francisco and gave his first public interview since uh, since his leaving Apple. He was interviewed by John Markoff, formerly of the New York Times. What did we learn that we published about from that interview? There were some interesting things from it. Um, Scott Forstall was kind of unceremoniously dumped from Apple after the Maps debacle, um, but he was a very important part of that company and, and spearheaded the development of iOS. So it was interesting to to hear him speak. I think the big takeaway that uh, was the most amusing from it was this idea that uh, Apple's pursuit originally of creating a tablet, which led to the development of the iPhone, was because Steve Jobs apparently uh, had issue with somebody at Microsoft and wanted to show them uh, how it would be done the right way um, and how it could be done with a finger rather than a stylus because uh, Microsoft was so dependent on a stylus and so adamant that uh, stylus input and handwriting were going to be the future of computers. 
Um, and Steve Jobs obviously had a very different vision where your fingertip was going to be the key to it. And so um, kind of a petty rivalry, if you will, um, that led to uh, Steve Jobs pushing the team at Apple to kind of do the impossible. Um, and it started out as a tablet project and eventually morphed into the iPhone, which came out uh, 10 years ago as of next week. Years and years ago, probably about 2004, 2005, one of my family members went to a uh, a meeting. It was kind of a it was actually more of a conference than a meeting necessarily, but he was there and Greg Joswiak was there and a fellow from Microsoft was there. And the fellow from Microsoft kept talking about tablets and how great tablets were and how tablets were the future. And Greg Joswiak said, "You see when I sit down, there's this thing called a lap that forms and I can use my laptop." And the Microsoft guy kept going back and forth about how great tablets were and how the tablets were the future and what they needed to be all making. And and Jaws said, listen, if, if you want to make something for the FedEx and the UPS guy, we get it. But not everyone needs one of those. And it's uh, it's one of those things that's always stuck with me, which was the, uh, the, the, the concept that, you know, when you sat down, you actually had a lap and you could use a laptop. And that's one of the things that Microsoft with the Surface still hasn't caught quite right with the kickstand. Yeah, and it's something that um, Apple has focused on in using the iPad because it still is very much a laptop device, especially the larger 12.9-inch form factor. I mean, it's not intended to be used holding with one hand and typing with the other. They don't even allow you to do the split keyboard mode for typing with two hands while holding it. Um, And quite frankly, using the device in a a portrait orientation is kind of awkward. Um, I think that Apple, and by the fact that they don't ship it with a keyboard... um, and they don't, and it's intended to just be used as this touchscreen device. It is uh, very much, uh, as I've said many times, it's the computer that you need in, in the moment that you need it. It can be whatever you need it to be. Um, but I think that that vision still somewhat remains that they see it as something that you lay down flat on your lap or on a table or a desk, and that's how you type and interact with it. We're going to change gears here a little bit, and uh, you, you may refer to this segment as the Amazon Insider segment. Big news this past week Amazon bought Whole Foods grocery chain for $13.7 billion, which has a, a bunch of knock-on effects. You know, one of them is that Amazon Fresh and, uh, and Amazon Pantry can expand and use the Whole Foods market both as outlets and as uh, distribution, which is kind of interesting. At the same time, I'm kind of wondering what will happen in terms of pricing because Whole Foods, as you know, is, is uh, pretty expensive. Do you shop at Whole Foods, Neil? Sometimes, yeah. Uh, I have a Trader Joe's yeah. around the corner, so that's my preferred place. But Sure. And they're very different in approach and also pricing, would you say? Yes. Whole Foods has a reputation for, for spending your whole paycheck there. It's one of the, <laughs> the ways that people call it sometimes. One of the interesting things is that Amazon opened a bookstore in New York. And when they opened the bookstore, one of the things they did with pricing was that if you're a Prime member, then you get the Prime pricing same as you would if you bought something Prime online. But if you're not a Prime member, then you pay the, the prices marked on, the, pa- on the, the book cover, on the book jacket. And I'm wondering if they do that within Whole Foods. The other thing I'm wondering is if there are savings to be found in terms of warehousing and distribution, because Amazon clearly has expertise in those. Mm-hmm. The other thing I'm thinking about is using it as a vehicle for Amazon Payments, because Amazon Payments was a thing that they were trying to do to compete with Square and PayPal here a few years ago. And it never really quite got off the ground, but now that they have 
all of these retail locations, they can make it a big thing. And and Fresh Direct as well, don't forget. Obviously, Amazon has wanted to get into the grocery delivery business for a long time. Grocery delivery was one of those concepts that was initially tried in the first dot-com bubble in the late 90s that fizzled out and just didn't catch on um, for whatever reason. Um, but Amazon keeps coming back to it, and, and other companies do as well. But um, they would like to get into that business. They'd like to be delivering you groceries. And obviously, by having local retail chains that they own, uh, the logistics of doing that now all of a sudden get much, much easier. I think one of the problems with delivery in the U.S. is that outside of major areas like New York, Seattle, San Francisco, that delivery areas are, are larger, that people are more spread out. Uh, even in you know cities like I live in in Raleigh, uh, it it becomes difficult to manage that large of a delivery area. Yeah, you know we we have uh, three Whole Foods, maybe four Whole Foods that I can think of close by, uh, that we might fall within the delivery area for, or might be just outside of. And it's uh, it's a difficult problem to solve. But what has worked has been the the reverse, which is ordering, and then going and picking up within a scheduled window. Mm -hmm. And that's something that some of the traditional grocery chains do and something that that Walmart does really well. And so it will be interesting to see how they approach that because Whole Foods doesn't really have that going on currently. Yeah, it'll be huge for people in major metropolitan markets, especially that live in cities. If you live in suburbia, it'll be a little different. You know, the logistics of getting your ice cream to you before it melts or fresh produce or whatever. But, you know, if you live in New York and you live, you know, in the city or at least close to Manhattan, um, you really, your grocery buying capabilities are what you can carry and that's it. Um, and anything beyond that isn't an option versus you live in suburbia you get a cart you roll it out to your trunk you load up the groceries you get back home it takes you six trips from the garage into the house to unload your groceries you can't do that in a major metropolitan area but you could order that many groceries online and then have amazon deliver them for you um, and kind of save you all the work so i think that there's a big market potential there um i don't know how well it will work in suburbia versus metropolitan areas but uh certainly amazon is convinced that there's a market there because they've been pushing at it for years now in multiple attempts and you know we talk about this because amazon d- despite being you know groceries not a core thing that apple does for example um Amazon and Apple compete in a, in a number of different ways or rub up against each other in different ways. You know, when we talk about the idea of Amazon payments, distribution, the services that are behind this kind of an operation are, are things that Apple could be related to. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's intriguing, and this is not a small deal. And what's interesting is that, you know, the day before this deal happened, people were looking at Whole Foods skeptically, saying that, well, you know, Whole Foods is in trouble, Whole Foods is having an issue. And the day after, Whole Foods is golden because now it's Amazon. It's a, it's a big perspective shift that can happen <laughs> quickly, right? Well, uh, and, and one thing that really drives me nuts about this is um, – and I don't think that any company is truly altruistic. You know, Even, even an ethically pretty upstanding company like Apple at the end of the day uh, needs to make a profit. And you can defend Apple all you want, um, but the, the truth of it is um, – they still employ cheap Chinese labor to make their phones and stuff. And I'm sure that anybody is going to argue with me and tell me, oh, you know, it's better wages than they get on average there, blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine. But it's still ethically questionable, right? And I look at a company like Whole Foods, which was very much built on a brand of of being uh, uh, green and uh, it's very much – Well, it was originally brand. built on being vegan. 
right? right? It was it was the very best qu- organic quality vegan food was the original thing. It's very much an elite brand and the kind of place that makes you feel better about yourself when you shop there. And so there's an irony in selling to the uh, uh, omnipotent Amazon, you know, of, of which is pretty much goes against everything that that Whole Foods I, ideals supposedly stood for, uh, which shows that it was all just kind of nonsense. Well, they were in trouble, right? They, they needed to get dug out and Amazon happily dug them out. What, you know, there are other things that can happen here, right? Amazon introduced the Amazon Dash version 2, which is the, the Amazon Alexa Dash. They updated via software for the original one. So Dash used to be this thing where you would scan barcodes to add them to your shopping list. And then you would also be able to use voice to, uh, to, to make reminders kind of things. And now you can speak to it to do Alexa ordering and scan barcodes. Mm-hmm. So with the purchase of Whole Foods, it's possible to, you know, we've always had this concept of, of trying to make the smart refrigerator. And the smart refrigerator concept used to have things like a barcode scanner built into the door so that you could scan items in as you took them out and then set them aside for reordering, add them to shopping list kind of thing. It never really panned out. It was it was always a terrible concept and a terrible implementation. Uh, the, the best smart fridge we've seen so far is the Samsung one that put a camera on the inside of the door so you don't have to window shop, right? right. You, can, you can leave the door closed while you know what's in there, or you can check remotely and see, do I have that in the fridge or not, which is somewhat useful. But having the, the Amazon barcode scanner that adds to your Amazon shopping list that goes ahead and places the order for you at Whole Foods becomes interesting. Yeah, I, I, I mean... I guess if you really wanted a smart fridge, I'm just reminded of the episode of uh, uh, Silicon Valley a couple weeks ago where Guilfoyle uh, hacks the uh, smart fridge. Um, <laughs> I, I, it's just it's one of those smart devices that I don't really think that we need. But well, it, it's it's a question about what problem are you trying to, to fix, right? What I've been doing for groceries is I use a shared note through Apple Notes, mm-hmm. and my wife adds stuff to the list and I go shopping for it. And I use that. Do you get the same things every time you go to the grocery store? Cause like, for example, I don't drink milk. So for somebody who needs milk, okay, that makes some sense. But, uh, my wife buys almond milk and it doesn't go bad and we barely drink that. So it's like, yeah, the, the list changes every time. Um, so, so this idea of having a smart, um, fridge that would automatically get you fresh eggs when maybe you don't want eggs this time. Eh, well, it doesn't have to automatically get me fresh eggs. I mean, if I'm using the dash thing and I see that we're running out of eggs and so I say to it eggs, then it's on the list and when I get to the store, I'm ready. Or it adds it to the list and when I'm ready to check out, I can all at once. Right? Because the problem is you you if you don't add something to the list immediately, you've forgotten that you run out of when you're in the store. Mm-hmm. So by adding everything to the list beforehand, I I am here. Here's why. Here's what works for me. I like very much the idea of adding things to the list before getting into the store so that I have fully everything that I actually need, nothing that I don't and checking out. And that way I get only the things I need. There's no window shopping that adds extra stuff to the cart after the fact. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot smoother and faster process. Because then I've already paid, and I can go ahead and, and get it. And that's that's where all this goes afterwards, right? So right now we're at a step where you can complete the order before you get to the store and have it delivered to you in the parking lot. Or, or in the case of, of uh, Amazon Fresh, have it delivered to your house. The next step is if you're in the store is 
adding things to your cart and scanning them as you're adding them to your cart, which you currently do through Target Cartwheel, for example, looking for discounts, but checking out without having to go through a register. By virtue of scanning them through an app in your cart in the store, you pay right through your app and you walk out same as you would an Apple. Yeah, they have some interesting concepts. There's there's a lot of interesting room for retail to grow and change here. And Amazon having this many retail outlets gives them the liberty to experiment. Yeah, I mean... That they would have had difficulty doing before. The irony is that they put a lot of these companies out of business and now they're getting into the real t- retail space, so... And yet, uh, when yeah, it came to Border, the iBooks Borders deal, Books is very unhappy about when it, that. When it came to uh, the iBooks deal, Apple were the ones that were bad for consumers, right? Right. Yeah, I know, I know. Let's get into some reviews. We've got a bunch of reviews here. You've had the 10.5-inch iPad Pro, mm-hmm. and this past week you put it into Logitech's Slim Combo keyboard with Smart Connector. Yeah, I did a first look the other day. Uh, readers can expect a review uh, potentially as soon as this weekend. I've uh, been messing around on it. Um, this is not a product for me, but it's important when I review products to remember that that's not really the point of the review is to just talk about my use cases. You got to kind of take a step back and think about what everybody's use case might be. Um, and from that respect, um, uh, I've seen a lot of positive comments on this product and I understand why. If you really want a laptop replacement and you don't mind uh, adding some bulk to your iPad, then this is a great product. Um, I like it better than the Logitech Create keyboard that came out last year. Uh, well, actually, the first one came out in 2015, but the 9.71-inch one came out last year. The Logitech Create is a, a connected uh, a permanent piece where the back of the uh, uh, cover on the iPad is connected to the keyboard below, and you can't separate them. Uh, this one is the same idea, but instead now you can detach the top part from the keyboard bottom part. Uh, so you still have a protective case on the back of the iPad, uh, but that protective case has a kickstand built in, and you can use the iPad in tablet mode. Um, and then if you want to use the keyboard, you can attach it to the smart connector, whatever. The Logitech Create keyboard was all one piece, so you couldn't take the keyboard off of it, so the added bulk was always there. I think my biggest issue with this one is there's a lip, a protective lip around the front side of the iPad uh, that covers uh, three of the four sides. So you can basically only hold it in one hand on one side. Um, the other sides have this kind of awkward lip and you wouldn't really want to hold it there. Um, but if you're planning to use it for as a laptop and you want to protect the back of it for you know 60 to 70% of the time, then this might be the product for you. Uh, if you want to use it as a laptop 100% of the time, then maybe the Logitech Create is, is the better option. Uh, I do like that this, this product is out there because it gives a few more options and it's a little bit more of a proper keyboard with a backlight and all that stuff than, than Apple's... Uh, um, uh, very simple smart keyboard. Personally, I prefer Apple smart keyboard because I mostly use my iPad as a tablet and then occasionally want a keyboard. So it makes sense for me to just kind of snap one on there, use it and then be done with it. But for users that uh, are buying this as a, a laptop replacement, um, which is a lot of people who buy iPads, uh, to be clear, uh, I think that they'll be generally pretty happy with this. And how is the kickstand? The kickstand is actually uh, the best part of the product, I think. Um, it has a lot of range to it, um, and uh, it's pretty solid. That's that's my concern, is that people who use these things as laptops frequently get stuck with one degree of, of viewing range, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's fixed at that one viewing range, or you have a limited degree of motion. Here you've got how much, how much degrees of tilt do you get? 50 degrees. Nice. 
Yeah, so you can have it angling straight up. You can have it kind of standing forward kind of thing. Um, and it's solid. Uh, it, it takes some force to move the kickstand back and forth. Uh, it's pretty nice. Um, again, I don't really see the need for a kickstand for how I use my iPad. But if you're in the market for something like this and you want uh, to have a keyboard, you now have uh, three decent options that all offer very different types of products, which I like. I want to see more smart keyboard and smart connector accessories out there. Uh, it's unfortunate that there are so few options out there right now. Uh, but I think the more that we have, the better it is for the product line. Very good. Now, before we started recording, you were telling me that you were thinking about upgrading your iPad to the new 12.9-inch iPad. You have the current model. Mm -hmm. So what is it about the new one that you like? I really like the 120 hertz display. Um, I think that it is a, a, a noteworthy upgrade. Um, I also don't like that my 12.9 inch iPad does not have uh, always on battery powered Hey Siri. And um, I... Yeah, I, I just I, I, those are a couple things that I that I wish it had. Uh, the new one has the faster Touch ID sensor as well. Although in my test, they seem like they were about the same speed. Um, and then you get the True Tone and, and some other things that were missing from the 2015 model. Um, so there, there's there's enough things in there to make it a uh, upgrade, good upgrade. You you also wrote about the 10.5 inch iPad Pro with the 120 hertz. It's the it's the same story for you. You just love that display. Yeah, the display is great. My, my main gripe with these, and especially the 12.9 inches that Apple, and we talked about this in the podcast last week, Apple's still shipping these with a 12-watt power adapter, which is inexcusable. Uh, both these devices are capable of USB 3 charging speeds. Um, I'm guessing that Apple did this so they didn't have to ship it with a USB-C wall adapter connector uh, to get the 29-watt power adapter. And so if you want to buy it separately, you have to buy the 12-inch MacBook power adapter, which is 29 watts, and you have to get a USB-C to lightning cable. Uh, which is a total of $75 plus tax in addition to the $650 or whatever uh, that you pay. So uh, I think Apple cheaped out there, and I think they made a mistake. And especially if they're pushing this as a, a laptop replacement, not something used in tandem with a laptop, then they should just trust it with its own power brick. Which I, I know you're thinking 12-inch. Which do you recommend for people, the 10.5 or the 12-inch? Is it just simply about the, the size of bag and easy-to-travel kind of thing? What's, what's your recommendation there? Yeah, I think most people would be happy with the 10.5 inch. Um, the screen size is great. The portability is great. You can use it one handed. It's light. Um, mo for most people, the 12.9 inch is going to be a little big. Um, it's not meant for one handed use. Um, you, it's heavier. It's it's a half a pound heavier. Um, it's just bigger. Um, I prefer the larger size because for me, it's just basically a, a light couch computer slash something I would watch TV on at home or. Uh, watch movies on on an airplane or something. But, uh, you know, for most people that want this versatile uh, type thing that they can toss in a bag, bring around, uh, bring it to work, bring it wherever, uh, you know, bring it to the park with them kind of thing, I think more people will be happy with that. And the sales show that. Apple even said in, uh, their, conf in their press conference that the 9.7-inch form factor was by far the more popular size. So the 10.5 is the successor to that. And I think that's going to continue to be the case. I think for a lot of people, the 12.9 is going to be too big. For me, it's the better size. You just got to think about if you're choosing between them, what they're going to be using it for. If, if it's just going to be something around the house, 
um, that you're using on your lap or, or to read on or whatever, then maybe the 12.9 inch is right for you. Um, even just laying it down on a desk and using it is a really great experience. If you're going to be drawing, uh, you might want a larger canvas. Um, I, you know, if you're reading documents a lot, you know, going through PDFs, then maybe you want the bigger screen. Uh, if you're reading comic books, having the bigger screen is nice, uh, even reading books. Uh, but if you want something that you, you know, want to toss in a purse or a bag, bring to the park with you, uh, you know, do that sort of stuff, then, uh, or if you're going to be bringing around the house, you want to cook with it, you want to do this, you want to do that, uh, the 10.5 is probably the better option. All right. You mentioned going to the park. So tell me about <laughs> using the DJI Spark in the park. Uh, yeah, so I got the DJI Spark last week. Um, I got the base model, which is $499, doesn't come with a controller, it connects to your iPhone. Um, and I really wanted to test out the gesture controls. So I went to the park with my wife on Sunday to test it out. And I wanted her to come down there, not only so she could shoot some video and stuff of it, um, which uh, there's a video of it up on our Instagram page if you want to check it out, um, but also um, to let her try it out too and see, because the whole pitch behind this thing, right, is that it makes using drones finally accessible to the masses, not only the price point, but also the no need to have a controller or do any like touch controls on your phone or anything like that. Like they've made it as simple as possible. And I would say that for the most part, they've succeeded. Um, my right. wife was when, able to... When you use a drone, there, there, yeah. there are two things you have to do, right? You have to be able to land it without crashing. And you have to be able to fly it without hitting people or hitting yes. other things, right? Yes. Th those are the kind of the starting requirements, yeah? Yes. Um, and and I, previously, it's been pretty hard to avoid either one of those things or both, right? <laughs> So this thing is is a kind of a close range uh, the the motion controls for obvious reasons they can't track you from 100 feet away with motion controls, um, but the way that it works, which is pretty interesting, is you press the button on the back a couple times the motors fire up you toss it in the air and then it just starts flying in front of you uh, you you let it fly there until it can uh, recognize you then you hold your palm out. It recognizes your palm and then you move your hand around and it follows your hand and you can get it in a position that you want. Um, all of that works very well. I had my wife test it out and she was able to do it really without much issue too. There was some uh, problem of her stepping a little too far away to get her to measure her hand. Then she went a little closer and it worked fine. Um, and then you move your hand around and it falls it around. And, and we were in the park and all these people were like a crowd gather. Everybody's like, are you controlling that with your hand? And people, it was kind of like one of those wow factor type things with technology. Uh, where things, I don't want to say fall apart, but become a little uh, iffy was there's a gesture to wave to get the device to fly 10 feet away. So uh, basically at a 45 degree angle, you wave and it goes up and further away. And then you can get a, a, a photo of you or whatever. Uh, I learned after testing it Sunday and having some issues with getting it to fly away that it doesn't really, you don't wave from the wrist. You basically take your palm and just move your entire arm back and forth. It understands broad gestures, not so, subtle. So things. wait, wait, are you gesturing with your elbow moving at that point? You're Basically, waving from the elbow. Hold your palm or from the shoulder. Yeah, wave from the from you know the the shoulder of the elbow, but have your whole hand move left and right in a broad way. You just make sure that your hand is in front of the drone's camera. You move your arm back and forth, and then it understands that as a waving gesture, and then it will fly the back the ten feet to get a better angle of you from a distance to get an aerial shot. Uh, I was having trouble with the park because I was waving as I normally would with my wrist, and that was too subtle of a movement for it to understand. Having tried or having learned that, I'm going to go back and try it again. Um, that was something that made it a little bit less intuitive. 
Uh, other than that, the rest of the gestures work fine. Once it's further away, you can hold up your uh, uh, index and thumb fingers on both hands in a in a rectangle, like a, like a framing a, a picture for a camera. Um, and then the lights on it will flash to let you know that it's recognized your gesture. Uh, three quick flashes of red, and then it uh, flashes again to let you know the picture's taken. Um, and you can do that a number of times. Um, and then you hold your hands up in like you're doing the Y, the Y and the YMCA. Um, and then it will come fly towards you and it stops just a couple feet in front of you. You walk out, you place your hand under the drone, you grab it, and then the engines power down and you're good to go. It sounds like there's a lot of choreography to learn here. Uh, there's basically, uh, three key moves, moving your hand around, uh, and waving to send it back the picture motion with your fingers and then the Y to bring it in for a landing. Uh, th those are, and, and and they're not really that difficult. Like I said, my wife, after watching me do it once, did it. And her comment to me was that she would never fly like a Mavic Pro or a Phantom because the, the big controller is intimidating and it, it feels like something that would be difficult for her. But she said she could see herself buying one of these because it was so easy to use and you can see the practical use of it. You go out with friends, you want to get a group shot, you don't want to have somebody have to get out out of the photo or you know do this weird thing like I, I went to a baby shower uh last weekend where uh, we had to like awkwardly prop up the camera on a, a chair and then my wife used uh the camera app on her apple watch to take photos uh while like so we could get everybody in the group photo so nobody was left out uh this is the kind of thing where um you could actually get a pretty decent group shot and the photos turned out really good um i, I was impressed I feel like my concern for DJI here is that your, your wife was able to gain the confidence that she could do this after she used it. That for people who have not experienced it yet, are, are they going to have the confidence they can do it? Will they be able to make that leap to be able to purchase? I think that I, this is definitely going to open new markets for them. I think it serves a very different you see market. what I mean? If yeah, you I, haven't I, tried it, you're still going to be skeptical as you would be of the, the big giant controller. Yeah, I think that's going to continue to be a barrier for them. Um, but I think that the price point is now at a point where a lot of people will go, well, what could go wrong? And they'll try it. At $500, that's that's a pretty good price point. Okay. In other news, Apple hired Jamie Ehrlich and Zach Van Amberg, who came to Apple from Sony Pictures. Uh, they were previously responsible for programming things like Breaking Bad and the Goldbergs. This is another part of what we're looking at as as maybe Apple beefing up their TV offerings. Yeah, it certainly seems like they're looking to get into the content game and to uh, make more original content. Uh, their efforts right now are pretty basic, a little pedestrian. Um, but as Amazon steps up, as Netflix obviously is doing very well, Hulu, uh, you name it, uh, it would seem that Apple wants Apple Music to be a content platform with original stuff that you have to subscribe to Apple Music in order to access. Um, and so th this would suggest that they're now starting to get a little more serious about it beyond Planet of the Apps and, uh, you know, Dr. Dre uh, uh, series or whatever. There's, there's a ton of shows that these guys have been behind, right? The Blacklist, Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul, Netflix's The Crown regrettably the uh, community deal that moved community from NBC to Yahoo uh, timeless after it got canceled. There's a lot going on here that these people have been responsible for. So I am optimistic. I am hopeful. It seems like a really good catch for Apple. Yeah. I, I think that there is 
uh, a lot of potential there. Um, I think that this is a, a space that Apple needs to start doing a little more in. Um, this is why you continue to hear people saying Apple should buy Netflix, uh, because they're kind of behind on the content game now. Definitely. So we got one of the iMacs, the uh, the 27-inch 5K iMac in. Um, what do we know about that? How How is it in terms of, of what you can actually do with it? Yeah, so Max um, and, and Dan on our staff uh, tested out the new iMacs, and uh, we published uh, uh, this week the 27-inch uh, 5K uh, iMac Retina display review. Uh, and the main takeaway with this new model is um, in previous iMac models, Apple has had uh, what were essentially mobile GPUs intended for uh, laptops. Uh, now Apple has gone ahead and squeezed in a higher-end true desktop graphics card. So you're getting a lot more horsepower for your buck here on these new iMacs. Um, App- Apple's also made it standard with Fusion drives, so you're no longer getting these just you know 5200 RPM spinning hard drives that run slow, so you at least have some flash memory on there where the OS is installed. Um, and that's going to make a big difference for performance, especially for these retina displays with uh, high pixel counts. Uh, on a 5K display, you're really going to need something to drive it. it. It needs some horsepower to do it. And these new graphics cards are pretty impressive. Yeah, these are the AMD Radeon Pro 570s with 4 gig or the Pro 580 with 8 gig of RAM. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're pretty capable. And we tested the 580. They are quite impressive. Uh, you know, it seems even when people aren't doing pro graphic work one of the things that people get upset about is if if just the user interface stutters at all right you're moving a window around you're resizing a window and something stutters visually you you notice it and that happened a lot on the former cards that had two gig of ram so these new ones with the four and the eight gig with the the faster gpus should solve all those kinds of problems you know, you're you're not just doing the uh, Final Cut Pro renders um, in in as much as twice as fast. It looks like you're mm-hmm. you're also experiencing that power of the GPU all the time. But gosh, we didn't even have trouble playing Battlefield One on it, which is a pretty impressive game. It it was running at between 50 to 70 frames, with most of it staying above 60 all the time, which is perfect for this 5K display. Yeah, yeah, they they really boosted the power here, um, and this is a response to, you know, as, as we talked about at our Adorama event earlier this year, there's a lot of concern about what Apple's doing for pro users. Uh, WWDC, Apple tried to make it loud and clear, we hear you, um, and, and here you're seeing the fruits of it. Definitely. So the last piece here that we're going to talk about, I think, let me just, yeah, is uh, so the core Bluetooth support in watchOS 4 is something that was talked about WWDC. And Dexcom CEO is now talking about their support for using Dexcom monitors with the Apple Watch. We, we saw a Dexcom screen grab in the WDDC keynote, and so I kind of suspected that they were a part of this. But go ahead and tell me a little bit about what we learned so far. There, was a lot of, there were a lot of rumors about um, Apple partnering with them to make, you know, an official Apple Watch band or something. Maybe hardware was going to be built into um, the the third generation Apple Watch. Um, it turns out that most of that information was hogwash. Um, the the CEO of Dexcom said that they were not partnering with Apple in that way. Um, this is something that is a uh, important but a niche. 
capability for users with diabetes. In order to take advantage of it, you have to have a procedure with a sensor embedded in the skin um, in order to check your blood sugar levels. This is not something that can be done over the top of the skin, uh, which is what some people thought was the case um, prior to this product actually being revealed uh, and announced as part of WBDC. So it's uh, still important um, and meaningful for a lot of people. But this is not the kind of thing that you can expect to just casually be getting your blood sugar checked just for the heck of it. Right. And you wouldn't do this just for the heck of it. I mean, there are, there are some reasons, some very legitimate reasons to be monitoring glucose. Right. You can do it if you're concerned about your diet and your, your how much sugar is in your diet. Mm-hmm. You can do it if you're having uh, fainting spells or feel weak and you need to monitor your blood sugar to see how you're doing. Um you can do it if you have diabetes or if you're pre-diabetic, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what's huge about this, so there's the Dexcom 5 monitor, which is uh, available that works with the iPhone and then works with the uh, the core Bluetooth and watch. But coming is a Generation 6 continuous glucose monitor that's going to ship in 2018, will be a lower profile unit, and have an, has an automated insertion system for the probe, mm-hmm. and that will work with the watch. The Gen 6 will be labeled for 10-day continuous use, up from uh, 7, which is cool. And uh, acetaminophen, which is Tylenol, tends to interfere with the data, and as of the Gen 6, that will no longer be an issue either. That's pretty cool. What's interesting for me is that we had a report that, that we wrote about and uh, covered a while back in, in May, about Tim Cook using one of these monitors. Mm-hmm. And this came out of a CNBC report where he had gone to Ireland and was speaking with students. And what he'd said was that uh, he had been wearing a prototype glucose tracker working with the Apple Watch that um, you know CNBC's reporting at that time was that it was Apple was working on the, the Holy Grail for diabetes, non-invasive and continuous glucose monitoring. But Tim Cook said that he has a lot of interest in personal health, that it's mentally anguishing to stick yourself multiple times a day to measure your blood sugar, that he had been wearing a continuous monitor and uh, had been been tracking it for some time using his Apple Watch. And it's kind of a big deal. You know, you, you say it's a niche kind of thing, but I was looking at CDC and the Centers for Disease Control, and more than 29 million people in America have diabetes. And about 86 million adults or one in three people, are pre-diabetic, where their blood sugar levels are higher than normal but not high enough to be classified as type 2 diabetes, Um, that as many as, I think it's 370 people, 370 million people, that is, worldwide, have diabetes. So even though it, you, you can say that's not so many people that have to worry with this kind of monitor, there's enough people that it, it certainly is a real concern that needs to be addressed. And making that kind of monitoring easier means that accurate treatment is also that much easier, which means quality of life is improved for, you know, whether it's those 29 million people or 86 million people and helping them avoid becoming diabetic uh, is a huge deal. If you can convince them to embed a sensor in their skin, yeah. Well, you you say that, but go back to the Gen 6 unit that says that it has um, automatic insertion, right? Right. So the question is, is you know, what are you going to do for your health? 
Sure. Right? And that's always been the question about these kinds of fitness bracelets, right? Fitbit and Jawbone and those was, you're going to buy this thing because you're interested in doing something about it. But the problem that I had with those was that their data was never actionable, that there was never any good way to understand what to do with it, right? Mm -hmm. With something like this, if you're if you're pre-diabetic and it, you know your doctor recommends to you get one of these things, um, the automatic insertion will certainly make it easier to deal with. Working with the Apple Watch and the iPhone will certainly make it more accessible to that user, and the data will be easier to act on too. Mm -hmm. I think this is a lot more useful in some ways than some of those Fitbit products for that type of, of user, that 29 yeah. million or that one in three, 86 million. Yeah, I think so. But I don't think that you're going to see Apple make or manufacture this kind of product because they don't want to get into the whole regulation issue. They just want to sell a product that consumers can go to the store and pick up. And accessories right. that interact with it, sure, uh, they'll open up uh, ways for developers to tap into it. But anybody that was expecting the next Apple Watch on its own was going to check diabetes and blood sugar levels, pff, they were not really understanding how things work. Yeah, and it, it doesn't make sense for Apple to be the manufacturer of those kinds of products. It makes Apple, Apple is, is very good at being the hub of a bunch of different spokes, right? Mm -hmm. so, so having the Apple Watch be the center of Apple Health and have Apple Health be about heart health, have Apple Health be about fitness and breathing and activity health, have Apple Health and Apple Watch be the center of your continuous diabetes and continuous glucose monitoring makes a ton of sense. It doesn't say that Apple has to make every one of those spokes. It says that Apple wants to be at the center of it. I think this is another one of these things where we're going to see more of this in 2018 and around 2019 we should really have this sort of sphere of health and, and Apple Watch as a part of health really come together. And we've been seeing these movements towards it, right? We've been seeing, um, you know, CareKit, for example, and the open sourcing of CareKit so that research can happen. All of these things are moving towards that, that world where the health data becomes personal and actionable. And that, for me, does, does a lot for Apple's value just in terms of improving people's quality of life and, and also, of course, their own stock value. Mm -hmm. Take it for what you will. I, I do own some Apple stock. So that's, again, my own personal opinion, not advice. <laughs> have I have I covered that well? I know that when you and I talked about this before, you were a little bit, uh, you wanted to be careful about it. I think we're good now. All right. What else would you like to talk about, Neil? I think we ran the gamut this week. Well, I'm your host, Victor Marks. Neil, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can read me at appleinsider.com, and you can find me on Twitter at thisisneil, N-E-I-L. And I'm Victor. You can find me on Apple Insider, and you can also check out... Uh, Neil and I recorded an episode not too long ago for another podcast. We were the guests that time. And this is on tapewrite.com slash scout. And go ahead and listen to it or look in iTunes for the Scout Tech Podcast. It might be worth a listen. You might enjoy that. Thank you very much. This has been the Apple Insider Podcast, and we will see you back next week.